Well, this past week, I was interested to learn about a businessman named Peter Thiel, who happens to be one of the most successful venture capitalists in the world. Thiel co-founded PayPal and was the first outside investor in Facebook to very successful online businesses which have since made him into a billionaire. But what really interests me about this man is not so much how he made all of his money, but how he's choosing to invest that money in order to seek a permanent cure for death. Speaking about this subject to a reporter, Thiel said there are three main modes of approaching death. You can accept it, you can deny it, or you can fight against it. And he's chosen the third option. And over the past number of years, Peter Thiel has put his money where his mouth is, pouring millions of dollars into what he calls the Immortality Project and funding medical research he hopes will slow down the aging process and eventually eliminate death itself. Peter Thiel truly believes that science and technology hold the key to eternal life, but just in case this breakthrough doesn't happen during his lifetime, he's come up with a contingency plan. He has paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to be cryogenically frozen at the time of his death in the hopes that scientists will one day figure out how to raise his body back to life. You know, as I read about this fascinating man in my office this week and thought about all of the millions of dollars that are being spent, I couldn't help but smile to myself because you don't need to be a billionaire to unlock the secret of eternal life. All you need to do is to pick up a copy of the Bible and to read it. And that's what we're going to do right now as we turn in the Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to get, begin reading this morning in verse 35. I remind you as I read, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've been in this section of 1 Corinthians for a number of weeks now, the longest chapter in the New Testament and what happens to be the longest letter that Paul wrote. It's a part of the Bible we often reflect on at Easter time, a chapter we read at Christian funerals because of the subject matter that lies at its heart, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the rock and the foundation for our future hope. And here in chapter 15, Paul is dealing with essential doctrine without which the gospel would not be good news, without which the Christian faith would be utterly useless. For Paul tells us in verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the doctrine of resurrection is true, if the Christian gospel is true, this is the most important and joyful message you will ever hear in this life. But if the resurrection is false, then we Christians are simply wasting our lives on childish myths and fairy tales. Well, in ancient Corinth, a city immersed in Greek philosophy, some of the Christians had come to doubt the doctrine of resurrection and to view the afterlife as some kind of eternal and disembodied state. These Corinthians were not unlike a large number of people in our own day who lack biblical understanding and have images of the dead floating around eternally on clouds and playing harps when the Bible teaches us something very different about the afterlife. A restored heaven, a renewed earth in which righteousness dwells. In the first half of this chapter, Paul has been defending the gospel from those who are calling the resurrection into question. Now in the second half, Paul is going to deal more specifically with the skeptics and their arguments. Paul is going to counter in these verses objection to the future resurrection that have to do with the nature and the composition of our bodies. The first half of chapter 15, the main question is, will there be a future resurrection? But now in the second half, Paul is going to tackle two additional questions that are every bit as important, and we find these questions in verse 35. Number one, how are the dead to be raised? And number two, with what kind of body do they come? Now these two questions reflect the scoffing and the skepticism that was permeating this church, and it seems that some of these scoffers and skeptics were deeply confused about what Paul actually believed and taught. They were somehow under the impression that our resurrected bodies would be identical to the bodies we currently possess here on earth. And for obvious reasons, that kind of thinking about our future destiny doesn't hold a whole lot of attraction. 
For some of us who struggled with illness and weakness and aging and continual aches and pains, the idea of leaving the old, worn-out physical body behind probably sounds like a welcome relief, while the thought of keeping that old body forever and ever doesn't sound like very good news. This was part of the confusion among the ancient Greeks who understood salvation in terms of getting rid of the body, liberating the soul from the physical and material world. Deeply influenced by their pagan culture, the Corinthians were confused about the nature of bodies in the resurrection. And one of Paul's jobs here in chapter 15 is to debunk popular misconceptions in the church and thus to silence the scoffers and skeptics. As Paul will make absolutely clear in these verses, the Christian hope is not to be resuscitated and to receive back our old earthly bodies. Rather, the Christian hope is to be resurrected in new bodies that have been completely glorified and transformed. We hear these kind of philosophical objections to the resurrection even in our own time. Men and women who say that the resurrection is absurd since our bodies will eventually decompose and return into the soil, be recycled into other living organisms so that even if God does exist, He would never have the ability to sort out the jumbled mess of atoms and molecules. These kind of philosophical arguments are not new, friends, and they reflect a profound misunderstanding about the nature of our bodies as it relates to the future resurrection. You may be interested to know that in the early church, the bodies of Christian martyrs were often cremated by their pagan enemies or else exposed to the elements where the corpse would be scavenged by birds and wild animals. In those ancient times, cremation, the denial of burial, was a way of mocking and attacking the resurrection. And the enemies of the cross thought that they could rob Christian men and women of their hope by destroying the body. But as Paul is now going to show us here in these verses, any feeble effort to prevent the resurrection of a believer is a fool's errand. Since we know the body we will one day receive in resurrection is not identical to the body that has been put into the grave. And by the way, if God didn't have a problem creating our old bodies out of the dust of the earth, He certainly won't have a problem recreating our new and glorified bodies at the return of Christ. Paul isn't intimidated by skeptics and mockers, and we shouldn't be intimidated either. And as Paul goes toe-to-toe with these men and women, he is going to expose their foolishness in three stages. First, by illustrating the transformation that takes place in the resurrection. Second, by outlining the traits of our new and resurrected bodies. And thirdly, by proclaiming the great triumph over death that comes through the resurrection. And so with God's help, that's where we're heading this morning. We're going to trace the second half of Paul's argument through these inspired verses. Well, Paul's first task encountering the Corinthian skeptics is to demonstrate that resurrection involves the dramatic transformation of our bodies and not merely the receiving of our old bodies uh, that were once put in the grave. Let's have another look at verses 35 to 38. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed, its own body. Core issue that was fueling all of this skepticism in the church was confusion between two different concepts. It was a confusion between resurrection and resuscitation. 
Now, last Sunday, you will remember, I hope, we considered the fact that Jesus is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. According to Paul's teaching earlier on in this chapter, Jesus is the first example of resurrection that we have seen in all of human history. He is a foreshadowing of what is yet to come for the Christian believer. But this idea of Jesus being the first fruits ought to raise a question in our minds, for we know that Jesus was not the first human being to die and to come back to life. In the Old Testament, we read about Elijah and Elisha who raised the dead back to life. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus performed the same kind of miracle. In Luke 7, Jesus raises the widow's son. In Luke 8, He raises Jairus' daughter. In John 11, He calls Lazarus to come out of the tomb. And so the question needs to be raised here, what Paul means when he calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep when the Bible clearly says there were other men and women who came back to life before Christ. The answer to that question, friends, lies in the distinction between resurrection and resuscitation, a difference that the Corinthians did not fully understand. When Jesus raised the dead to life during His earthly ministry, we must always keep in mind that those men and women eventually died a second time and went back into their graves. It's remarkable that Lazarus was raised from the dead, but when he came walking out of his tomb that memorable day, Lazarus had the same mortal body that was put into the tomb a couple days earlier. And eventually that mortal body that Jesus resuscitated wore out and got sick. and It died a second time. But when our Lord Jesus rose from the dead on that first Easter morning, something incredible happened that sets Him apart from everyone else in history. For Jesus left His tomb that day never to return to it again. And friends, that is the difference between resurrection and resuscitation. Lazarus and all of the others were resuscitated in their mortal bodies, but Jesus was resurrected in a new and a glorified body. That is why Paul the Apostle refers to Jesus here as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Not the first resuscitated man, but the first resurrected man. Corinthians were scoffing and denying the resurrection because they were deeply confused in their thinking. And Paul is now going to set them straight by emphasizing the transformation that must occur when our dead bodies are glorified and raised back to life. Well, before we look specifically at Paul's argument here in these verses, it may be helpful to remind ourselves of what Jesus' resurrected body was like because that will give us a better idea of what our resurrected bodies will be like. When we read the Gospel narratives, it's clear that Jesus in His resurrected state was not some kind of a phantom or a ghost for He allowed Thomas and the other disciples to touch His body. Luke 24, we're told, when Jesus appeared to the disciples as a group, they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a ghost. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. On that remarkable occasion after the resurrection, Jesus went out of his way to show the disciples he had a physical human body that was able to be touched and was even capable of eating food. 
But even so, we learn in the Gospels that Jesus' resurrected body was unique and different in some ways. For He had the ability to do things with His new body that you and I could never do. In John 20, 26, we read that Jesus could suddenly appear in a room, perhaps even to travel through solid walls and locked doors. Also interesting to note is the fact that people didn't immediately recognize the Lord in His resurrected state, although later on they did. When Mary Magdalene arrived that first Easter morning and found the tomb empty, she initially thought that Jesus was the gardener. The same thing happened to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who walked and talked with Jesus on the road, not having a clue who He was. And according to Luke's narrative, it was only afterwards that Jesus opened their eyes so that they could recognize Him and then He immediately vanished from the room. These eyewitness testimonies are fascinating because they show us that our resurrected bodies will be similar to what we know in this life, but will also be different in some very significant ways. In the consummated kingdom of God, I believe we will be able to recognize one another. We will be able to enjoy life in our physical bodies, but not everything about those bodies is going to be the same. And perhaps the best commentary on this biblical truth comes to us in 1 John 3, verse 2, where the Apostle says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Already, brothers and sisters, we are dearly loved children of God. Already we get to experience the wonderful blessings of God's present rule and reign. But yet the promise of God's Word is that there is more to come in the future and that the future of the believer will be glorious. For the day is coming when these weak and mortal bodies will be transformed and glorified to be like the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus. Corinthians were making fun of something they didn't understand. And so in verses 36 to 37, Paul exposes their foolishness with a simple everyday parable, a seed that is put into the ground. In this illustration, the seed represents our mortal human bodies which are destined to die, to go back into the earth. And if you've ever planted a garden before, you'll know exactly what Paul is talking about. Now everybody knows when you hold a little seed in your hand, there is nothing the least bit impressive about it. The typical seed looks dead, it looks dried out, it looks shriveled up, and if you didn't know any better, you'd throw it away in the garbage and never think of it again. Do you know something? Once you put that shriveled, dried out, dead looking seed into the ground and you add a little bit of water, something amazing happens. For a few short days later, you start to see the shoot peeking out. And then over the next number of days and weeks, the shoot turns into a plant and eventually it will start to produce fruits and vegetables that you can enjoy. Now this is a simple illustration that all of us can relate to and it helps us understand the radical transformation that will happen in the resurrection. It is quite literally new life coming out of something that is dead. And what's most important to see in this illustration is that the plant that comes out of the dead seed looks radically different than the seed that was put in the ground. Now in some ways, we'd have to say that the body of the plant is continuous with the body of the seed. For after all, they both have the same DNA in their cells. But in other words, we'd have to admit that these two bodies look dramatically different from one another. And that's the way it's going to be in the future resurrection. There will be striking similarities between the old body and the new body, but at the same time, there will be remarkable differences. 
In certain ways, our resurrected bodies will be recognizable as the people that we once were on the old earth. In other ways, they will be marvelously transformed like a butterfly coming out of the cocoon. And this is what the Greeks and the Corinthians couldn't get. They were thinking about resuscitation when the Bible promises resurrection. Well, the first step here in Paul's argument is to show that resurrection involves a transformation and a change in our physical body. But now he wants to show these Corinthian skeptics that these new and glorified bodies will be perfectly suited for life in a new and glorified world. Let's have another look at verses 39 to 41 of our text. For not all flesh is the same kind, for there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Before pointing these Corinthians to the new world that is yet to come, Paul points them and invites them to examine the world that they already know and to see the wide diversity of life that God in His wisdom has created. Everywhere we look on this planet, we see bodies that are perfectly suited for their unique environments. The body of a fish, for example, has gills that allow it to breathe in the water, while the body of a mammal has lungs that require it to be out in the air. If you take a fish out of the water, it will suffocate. If you put a mammal under the water, it will drown. So they're two different forms of life, two very different forms of bodies. God has created some bodies to survive in the freezing temperatures of the Arctic and other bodies to, to survive in the searing heat of the Sahara. He's created some bodies to fly in the air, other bodies to walk on the ground, and other bodies to swim in the ocean. He's created plant bodies and animal bodies. He's created large bodies and microscopic bodies. Everywhere we look in this world, creation testifies to the marvelous creativity of our God who designed different creatures to live in different types of environments. And even when we look beyond the realm of biological life and gaze up into the sky, we see the sun and the stars and the planets and the moon, celestial bodies that our God has made. Some of these heavenly bodies are made out of gas, while others are made out of rocks and minerals. Some of these heavenly bodies have the ability to produce light while others can only reflect light. One of these bodies that we call the earth has been designed by God to support organic life while all others that we currently know of are devoid of life. And so whether we are looking around at life forms here on our home planet or gazing upwards towards the vast universe, we see an array of bodies that are perfectly and uniquely designed by the great artist himself. And given all of the diversity that we can all observe with our own eyes, is it really so unreasonable to suppose that this God could create yet another body? A new body, a glorified body that is designed for life in a new and restored world? This is the kind of thing that the Corinthians were mocking. And Paul is now showing them how foolish it is to put God in a box. How foolish it is to tell God what He can and cannot do. Because certainly, if you believe that God created all of the heavenly and earthly bodies we can see in this vast universe, it is not beyond His ability to raise the dead back to life and to grant them glorified bodies that are perfectly suited for eternal life in the kingdom. 
The body we're going to have in the resurrection will be different from the body we know here on earth. That might be hard for some of us to imagine, but it's not too hard for our God. And Paul is now going to explain how these new and glorified bodies will be different from the earthly bodies that we currently inhabit. Look with me at verses 42 to 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is, sown perish- what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now here in these verses, Paul sets up a contrast between earthly bodies that are headed towards death in the grave and heavenly bodies that are designed for eternal life in God's kingdom. The first difference that Paul would have us to understand is the difference between a perishable body and an imperishable body. Although some people like Peter Thiel seem to live under the delusion that they can live forever, the grim reality that we all must face is that we live in perishable bodies that are destined for the grave. Exercise, a healthy diet, a healthy lifestyle may help to extend the the time that we live here on earth and to give us a better quality of life in the years God gives us, but it will certainly not enable us to live forever. The scientific community is developing medical techniques and procedures that can cure disease and can extend human life. But when all is said and done, you and I will still end up in the grave. Death is not so much a question of if, it is more a question of when. For the Bible tells us clearly it is appointed unto man once to die, and the wages of sin is death. These earthly bodies that we dwell in have an expiry date, but the new and glorified bodies that God is preparing for us are bodies that will never die. In the resurrection, we will be given eternal bodies that will never grow old. They'll never get sick. They'll never never face death. People in our world today would spend all of their money to get a body like that. But the good news of the Bible is that you don't need to spend a penny because someone else has already paid the bill. The Lord Jesus, when He died on the cross of Calvary, paid the price for every believer so that you and I can live forever with Him in new and glorified, imperishable bodies. The bodies that we are yet to see are imperishable, but Paul gives us a few more contrasts in these verse. Bodies that are sown in dishonor and weakness that will one day be raised with great glory and power. You know, although the funeral homes do their very best to make our earthly bodies look presentable after we've died, I think there will always be a sense of discomfort when we look into that casket and see the human body in its weakest and most vulnerable state. Like the seed that the farmer places into the ground, so our earthly bodies will one day be placed into the, into the earth. They will be buried in the ground and all of our friends and relatives will come to the funeral home and will view our bodies in their lowest and most dishonorable state. I'm not trying to be disrespectful this morning, but death carries with it a degree of dishonor. And that being the case, how encouraging it is to know that those lifeless bodies of ours that are placed in the ground and covered up with dirt will one day be raised up glorious and majestic. C.S. Lewis, in one of his more famous essays called The Weight of Glory, reflects on this future glory that belongs to the Christian believer, and he says the following, 
It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses and to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can or may, may talk to will one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and corruption with, with, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these things are mortal. Their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke and marry and snub and exploit immortal horrors or else everlasting splendors. This does not mean we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have from the very outset taken one another seriously. How important it is, brothers and sisters, to remember that the people we rub shoulders with every day in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, are people who are destined for eternal life in one of two destinations, either in the lake of fire that burns eternally, or else in the everlasting kingdom of God. And how important it is to consider that the most plain and ordinary Christian that you know of today will one day rise up out of their graves as the most glorious creature you could ever imagine. Paul reminds us here in these verses, our earthly bodies are perishable, they're dishonorable, they're weak, but he also encourages us with a glimmer of the glory yet to come on that day of resurrection, new and glorified bodies that are perfectly suited for life in the kingdom. Bodies that are eternal and glorious and powerful and spiritual. Bodies that will not grow old. Bodies that will not get sick. Bodies that will not wear out. Most importantly, bodies that will not sin against God. And as Christian believers, we have a great hope. We have a glorious future. And Paul speaks more about that hope in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. In this confrontation with these skeptics, Paul has shown us there is a major difference between the bodies we currently possess in this life and the bodies that we are yet to receive in the next life. Now in verses 45-49, to he is going to relate these two kinds of bodies to the two great representatives of humanity that we considered last week. Let's look again at verses 45-49. to Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
little earlier in verses 21 to 23, Paul introduced this contrast between Adam and Christ as a way to explain the eternal destiny of every member of the human race. Those men and women represented by Adam in his disobedience and rebellion will die both spiritually and physically, but those men and women represented by Jesus Christ will live forever even though their physical bodies will eventually die. Now this contrast between Adam and Christ, the first and the second Adam, applies to our eternal destiny, but it also applies to the kind of body we possess. As members of the human race, every one of us has received an earthly body which is patterned after the body of Adam, a body that was created from the dust and a body that will eventually return to the dust. We're reminded of that at every committal service when we gather around the gravesite and place some dirt on top of the casket and commit the body of our loved one to the ground, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. The old earthly body we receive from Adam is destined to decay and die, but the new heavenly body that we are yet to receive from Christ will live forever, for He is, Paul tells us here, a life-giving spirit. Peter Thiel has spent millions of dollars in a vain effort to escape death. The Bible says eternal life is free for those who come to Jesus Christ, who will believe that He died on the cross for sinners, who will repent of their sin and receive His grace by faith alone. Eternal life in a new body is not something that we can earn through good works or buy with our money. It is something we must receive as a free gift of grace. And that is part of the good news of the Christian Gospel. Well, Paul has gone toe-to-toe with these skeptical opponents. He's exposed the folly of their questions. But now in verses 50-58, to Paul is going to land the knockout punch by declaring the defeat of death and pronouncing the victory of Christ. Let's look at these verses 50-58. to I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in some ways, these concluding verses summarize all of the truth we've been considering so far in this chapter. And just as a seed must first die in order to be transformed into a plant, so it is impossible that these weak and perishable bodies of ours will ever be able to inherit the kingdom of God if they do not first die. Back in Exodus chapter 33, Moses once asked God if he could see his glory. And God responded to Moses that nobody could see his glory and live. Like many of us today, Moses desperately wanted to see the glory of God, but the closest Moses ever got in his mortal body was to see a dim reflection of God's glory as he hid himself in the cleft of the rock and God passed by. So awesome, so glorious is our God, brothers and sisters, that these perishable and earthly bodies would be totally blown apart by the glory of God. We could not possibly experience that kind of unmediated beauty and glory and live to tell the tale. It would instantly kill us. 
Little wonder then that the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 50 that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Although it's absolutely true, death is an enemy we must face at some point, there's also a sense in which death is an act of divine mercy for the Christian. For only death can liberate us from these earthly shells so that we might be clothed in new spiritual bodies that are specially designed for life in the kingdom. If you want to travel into outer space, I would suggest that you put on a spacesuit first. If you want to live in God's eternal kingdom, I'd suggest that you put on a new body. The overwhelming majority of Christian people will need to experience death before we enter into the kingdom. But here in 1 Corinthians, Paul informs us that a small minority of Christians will indeed be alive at the return of Christ and will not need to experience death in the grave. When our Lord Jesus returns to this earth, all of the dead in Christ will rise up out of their graves to receive new and glorified bodies, and all of the Christians who are still alive on this earth will be transformed in the blink of an eye. And then with our new and glorified bodies, we the redeemed people of God will rise to meet King Jesus in the air and we will escort Him back to the earth where He will defeat His enemies and will rule and reign forever in His kingdom. The return of Jesus Christ is going to trigger a glorious moment of transformation when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. And in that joyful and triumphant moment of vindication, the saying will finally come to pass, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your, your sting? Christians, millions of people in our world today are absolutely terrified at the thought of death. They will do anything in their power to prevent it and to delay it and to put the thought of death out of their minds. But for the Christian believer, death is a defeated foe. You know, the very worst thing that death can do to us is to usher us into the presence of the Lord. And for that reason, it matters very little to me whether I'm alive or dead at the time of Christ's return, for the outcome will be precisely the same. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It doesn't matter whether I'm alive or dead. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, death seems like a scary thing. And rightfully so. For death will bring you face to face with the judge of all the earth who knows you far better than you know yourself. And Paul tells us here in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. That's a very sobering truth to consider. You see, friends, no matter how hard we try to follow God's law in our own strength and effort, we will always come up short for the standard of God's law is perfection. And as far as I can tell, there's not a perfect person in this room today who has ever attained to the perfect standard of God's law or even gotten close to it. God did not give us His law in order to show us how good and righteous we are. He gave us the law in order to demonstrate that we are helpless sinners who desperately need His mercy and grace. And once we are aware of our sinfulness and God's majestic holiness and the unavoidable reality of death, our hearts are gripped with fear and dread for we know that it is appointed unto man once to die and that we will stand before this God in judgment. We also know as Christians from the Word of God that those who die in sin apart from Jesus Christ will most assuredly be lost forever. 
They will spend eternity in the lake of fire. There will be no second chance to repent. There will be no possibility of escape. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if it were up to us to save ourselves, we would fail miserably. We would perish eternally in our sins. But 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus came into this world from the splendor of heaven to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And as a human being, fully God, fully man, Jesus lived the perfect and sinless life that you and I can't live, and He paid the death penalty for anyone and for everyone who would ever believe in Him. And on their behalf, He has overcome the curse of Adam's sin. And if you will turn to Him today, if you will repent of your sin, if you will trust fully in His finished work on the cross, He will save you to the uttermost. He will wash away your sin. He will take away your guilt. He will replace the fear of death with a wonderful sense of rejoicing. So that we can sing as Christians, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen.